Welcome to The Disaster Project, a podcast about everything disaster. I'm your host, Dr. Larissa Unruh. In response to the 2001 anthrax cases, which occurred when letters containing anthrax spores were mailed to several news offices and two U.S. senators, ultimately killing five and infecting 17 more, President George W. Bush authorized a federal government program called BioWatch in 2003. This program sampled air from 32 major cities and tested it for pathogens that might be weaponized and released as an act of terrorism. It was hoped that this surveillance system would shorten the time for detection and provide these cities with more time to evacuate and respond to such an attack. So far, there have been many false positives, but no credible threats have actually been identified. BioWatch is an example of biosurveillance, which, according to the Department of Homeland Security, is the development of surveillance systems to detect, prevent, and counter biologic attack. And this is the topic of today's episode, biosurveillance. Our guest today is Dr. Dan Hanfling, an emergency medicine physician in the D.C. area and a vice president on the technical staff at InQtel which is a not-for-profit 501c3 supporting the national security establishment to bring emerging technologies to government partners in order to address critical mission requirements. The team he is on, Be Next, focuses on life science, biotechnology, and biomedicine, and has made a number of investments to support pandemic preparedness and response efforts, such as investments in needleless vaccine administration, wastewater epidemiology, digital health, and biosurveillance capabilities. Let's hear what Dr. Hanfling can tell us about biosurveillance and how it enhances the preparedness and response to disasters. Thank you so much for coming. I'm really excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Larissa. It's great to join you, and I'm looking forward to your questions. Hope that I'll have some answers for you. Oh, I'm sure you will. (laughs) All right, so let's get started. Um, Would you mind telling us a little bit about your job and how you got into this position? Yeah. So uh, as you know, I'm a practicing emergency physician. Uh, Hard to believe I started my emergency medicine residency 30 years ago this year. Uh, I wonder where the time went. And I've spent most of my career focused in most broadly in disaster medicine with a number of responsibilities over the years, both at the health system level and also with the federal government in preparing for and responding to catastrophic disasters. Been out the door with FEMA and USAID. I've spent a fair amount of work with the National Academies in helping to develop a framework for catastrophic health response. And I spent four years working for uh, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services, which is where I was prior to my current role, where I am now at InQtel, uh, which is a strategic investment firm that is uh, funded to support the purchase and I should say identification and um, utilization of enabling technologies to support national security uh, areas of interest. And obviously, my area of interest is in health security and protecting the country from large-scale disasters. That's really cool. Can you tell me about the history of InQtel? How did that get started? Yeah, so so InQtel is a not-for-profit 
you know, 501c3 that was founded in 1999, I believe it was, uh, by the Central Intelligence Agency to support, as I stated earlier, support the national security community in gaining access to innovative technologies that were arising from innovative startup companies. Think about, you know, the late 80s and early 90s, where so much innovation was happening basically in Silicon Valley garages. I mean, Google started in, I think, Sergey Brin's parents' garage. And what had heretofore been a lot of federal money going into the established research and development infrastructure of the United States science community in, in name, the national labs, you know, Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in a Innovation was not happening as much uh, from the national labs as it was happening uh, in the community and particularly fueled by venture capital startups. So Incutel was born to sit between the startup community, venture capital, and the federal government to identify and bring forward technologies that would be of uh, interest and support to the national security community. And over 20 plus years, Incutel has made uh, over 650 investments, more than half of which have you know, resulted in uh, what we call mission-related adoption. So these are technologies where uh, our government partners decide are worthy of uh, implementation and utilization. And we get out of the way as a strategic not-for-profit investment firm. We don't make uh, any money uh, necessarily on the investments that we bring forward as individuals. We see as our mission, you know, ret our return on investment is the adoption of these technologies. Although Incutel has made some very smart investments over the span of its 20 plus year history, including investing in the company, a company called Keyhole, that's um, the basis for Google Earth, which we all have on our smartphones. It invested in Palantir Technologies. Palantir is the data infrastructure backbone for most uh, US government uh, agencies with regards to big data, if you will, and more recently made an investment in Ginkgo Bioworks, which is the preeminent uh, synthetic biology company uh, that's really leading the way, uh, leading the direction towards the biorevolution. So so from those proceeds, uh, Incutel was able to stand up the team that I'm on, which we call B-Next, uh, standing for Biology Next, which you know was really focused on recognizing the importance of life sciences and biology to supporting the national security mission. And that's uh, where I'm currently uh, working. So let's jump into the meat of this talk, which is about biosurveillance. And you had mentioned that part of your job, at least, has a biosurveillance aspect. So could you explain what biosurveillance is? I feel like when people hear that, it sounds like some covert operation. Uh, but I feel like there's lots of examples where there's everyday life biosurveillance. Could you explain some of those? Yeah, so it does sound a little it does sound a little freaky, I guess, coming especially, you know, from the perspective of a of a strategic startup, you know, investor that is got roots in the intelligence community, but biosurveillance is actually really an imprecise term. I mean, it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And as I think about it, I really think about it as sort of a foundational capability of public health. In other words, 
what is what is the state of health in any given community and and what are the risks to that community uh, whether they be from uh, disease activity whether it's infectious or release of toxic chemicals or you know or other threats whether they be intentional or of natural origin and and so biosurveillance you know has received a lot of attention particularly uh, over the past 20 years and I should say I kind of cut my teeth in this field, if you will, as an early attending uh, at Inova Fairfax Hospital, where I still practice. When we diagnosed two of the inhalation anthrax cases that presented to our emergency department in the fall of 2001, and we contributed to the successful diagnosis of a third case. And, you know, by hook or by crook, I was very much a part of recognizing just how important surveillance was going to be going forward to helping us as physicians and particularly as emergency physicians to, you know, make the right diagnosis and to protect our communities from, you know, from from other risks and other threats. And so by Biosurveillance really is a series of processes that, I mean, the official definition, if you will, you know, detect, monitor, and characterize national security health threats. And if you want to be comprehensive about it in both human and animal populations, making sure the food is safe, making sure the water is clear, making sure our agricultural, you know, entities are disease-free, et cetera. And, you know, none of us have to go any farther than the experience we've all had over the last three years um, to recognize just how important biosurveillance really is. So you had mentioned that you have a disaster medicine background. How does biosurveillance relate to disasters? Is it used to, like, improve detection or prevention? I think the, this general set of principles around biosurveillance are very much uh, a part of our responsibility as disaster, you know, medicine physicians. And we are, uh, I'll say this, I'll say this time and again, uh, our systems, our data systems are good, but there is no substitute for the smart, intuitive clinician who actually has a hunch and follows up on that hunch to wonder what it is that they're seeing. And so, you know, I think whether it's the anthrax cases in 2001, whether it is the uh, cases of uh, Ebola that were uh, beginning to, you know, present in West Africa in 2014-15, whether it was, you know, monkeypox cases more recently that began to crop up. It's an astute clinician that is always going to be at the forefront of making decisions. And the question is, is can we put a surveillance system in place to backstop the astute clinician and to really then give us the kind of situational awareness and information necessary to make the difficult decisions around responding to such events. And so in that regard, I think biosurveillance is and always will be very intricately connected to disaster preparedness and uh, prevention. As someone who specializes in biosurveillance, what bio threats keep you up at night? What should we be worried about? Huh. Thanks for that. <laughs> it's tough to be a doctor disaster because sometimes your imagination can definitely run away with you. And, you know, I would say on the, you know, on the infectious disease front, there's no question that what COVID taught us, 
which was very humbling, is that we really, we have a lot of work to do to be prepared for what I would call the, are the known knowns. We know about coronaviruses. Nearly a generation ago, SARS-1, which killed about 800 people, but you know, shut down the economies in Hong Kong and uh, in much of Toronto, scared the heck out of the United States and Europe for sure, you know, was a threat that we knew could come back. And sure enough, it did in the in the form of, of COVID-19. I worry about, you know, the fact that there are other known knowns like uh, H5N1, you know, a, and the risk and threat of a pandemic influenza, which could be actually even more transmissible and more severe in consequence than, than this uh, past coronavirus pandemic was. I also worry a lot about the, I guess, would fairly be called the unknown unknowns. You know, the fact that there could be emerging infectious pathogens of which none have ever entered into the human population. And we don't even know about them. We don't even see them. And when you think about climate change and growing urbanization and the movement of, of the rural poor into urban settings and particularly in parts of the world where there is no infrastructure to support them. Are we are we inviting you know the risk of those unknown unknowns? So there's a lot to be worried about, but you know I'm too busy day in and day out to let it interrupt my sleep in any case, or at least usually. In your opinion, what new technologies for biosurveillance are coming up? What are you excited about then? The kinds of experiences that we had to contend with, you know, during this past pandemic has really demonstrated that there are opportunities to put into place technologies that can make a, a big difference. And in my, in sort of my read on this, the, the three that I, I have been most interested in is the broadening deployment of digital health tools. I mean, think about wearables, whether you have an Apple Watch or Fitbit on your wrist right now, just for wellness or more sophisticated, you know, medical grade wearables that are increasingly being deployed in remote patient monitoring or for clinical trials, evaluation, et cetera. There's a whole lot of data and opportunity to see and establish baseline health of any given community, if you will. There's also the use of chatbots and other sort of asynchronous means to assess, you know, the well-being of any any given population, which I think is going to increasingly play a role, particularly in, in early screening of disease potential. The advances in data science have been very interesting. And there's a company that I am very interested in that is essentially a smart thermometer that is doing fever tracking across communities and a combination of the information that they're collecting and the modeling and projections that they're able to put in place give us some insights at a hyper-local level that I think are very interesting. And then, you know, there is what I oftentimes say is, you know, what's old is new again. A lot of work uh, that over the past three years that went into identifying the benefits of wastewater sampling and what we call wastewater epidemiology, where you know, the analysis of basically the analysis of poop that's getting flushed through the sewers can give really good indications as to, you know, potential for disease uh, in the community, as well as other other things that you can look for uh, in the wastewater, like 
substances, illicit drugs, et cetera, et cetera. So I think these are these have all played an interesting and an important role during COVID-19 and I think paved the way for, for some of the future with regards to uh, biosurveillance. So I definitely do have one of those watches. Does the data from my watch get analyzed by someone else? So right now, no. I mean, if someone else is other than the, you know, the company uh, from whom you uh, wear that watch. So whether that's a Fitbit, and so that's Google or Apple watch, that's Apple or Whoop, uh, which is a, a fitness tracker that, that would be Whoop. Consumers usually check a little box and say, yes, I agree with the terms and I understand this is my data and I have access to view my data, but this data is kept as private and confidential and won't be shared, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, right now, with the exception of opt-in opportunities, you know, for research and so on, uh, no one else is, is looking at that data. But, you know, I think you raise a really important point, which is that as, as we look at more data across a variety of different data streams, we have to continually pay attention to privacy and security concerns because, of course, in the wrong hands, that could be manipulated. And I think it's a legitimate issue to raise at the outset. You had also mentioned wastewater sampling, which is super interesting. So essentially, is it just looking for like variations in viruses and bacteria in the waste? Or how do they know what's going on with a population by looking at a wastewater sample? So exactly right. What wastewater sampling does is essentially collect samples. Again, this is going to be pretty sensitive, but not necessarily specific with regards to where those samples are coming from. Depends on where you're collecting. So, well, let me answer first um, your specific question, which is, you know, how they do it. So, so they are basically doing, you know, one-step RT-PCR, you know, looking for virus or other uh, entities. And, and they basically can identify concentrations over time and then contextualize that to the community based on where those uh, acquisition samples are drawn from. So, for example, a number of universities, many universities started to employ some variation of these techniques, essentially at the dorm level. So they would know if there was an outbreak of COVID, they would see, because COVID is shed in the stool, the virus is shed in the stool, they would see evidence of that even before patients were symptomatic. And remember, COVID virus will transmit through your body, you'll excrete it. And you know the incubation period is a few days, let's say four to five days. So they could pick up on the fact that COVID was spreading in a particular building prior to any patient, any students getting sick. And this was employed at the campus level, as I just stated, at the city level, even at the state level. And CDC actually went so far as to develop the NWSS, the National Wastewater Syndromic Surveillance Program, which is now collecting data across the country. And, you know, this is, this is a pretty simple, pretty cost-effective way to screen for disease in the community. And what's great about being able to do it in the manner that it, that it is done is that you can look for variants. So as COVID-19, as variants began to overtake other variants, PCRs were demonstrating you know, evidence of that. And that provided really good situational awareness as the pandemic evolved over time. Have they been comparing viral loads to epi curves and seeing if those follow the same trend? 
So exactly. So there's no question that there is there's definitely some correlation both with regards to viral load and propensity for disease in the community. I, I myself don't apply all the mathematical and statistical, you know, methodologies uh, that make those conversions happen, but I understand from my data science colleagues that, you know, there's been consistency there. And so both the amplitude of the curve, if you will, with regards to what's seen in the wastewater, as well as the time and duration of illness are fairly consistently correlated. And and this is interesting because what this means is, is that again, because with many viruses, they'll shed through the, you know, through the GI tract before any symptomatology, it can give you a couple of days heads up, if you will. And I'll say that, you know, paired with fever monitoring, fevers are very sensitive, but not at all specific. A combination of both fever monitoring and wastewater monitoring can give you some really interesting uh, indications that something's coming, if you will. And right now, back to your question about who sees all this data, right now, we don't really have, with the exception of private sector uh, efforts that are intended to bring these disparate data streams together into one dashboard, we don't have sort of a fully integrated, I would say, collection of all of these uh, data inputs, but we're quickly heading in that direction. You had also mentioned a smart thermometer. Can you explain what that is and what it does? So this is what I was just alluding to. So smart thermometer, I mean, it's only as smart as the person uh, who uses it. But, you know, what a digital thermometer does is obviously gets your temperature and then through a Bluetooth connection, uh, connects to your phone, an app on your phone. And again, with a checkbox, when you buy the thermometer off the shelf, that data is analyzed by the company uh, that runs the that runs this network. And what's really interesting, I think, about the smart thermometer is that it also prompts a series of questions. So who else in your household is sick and what other symptoms do you have? And they basically go through a syndromic surveillance checklist and in doing so are able to note whether there is an impending outbreak in any given geographic location because they have the they have the data sort of locked down to a zip code, whether there's a GI bug that's evolving or upper respiratory infection and so on. And so the ability to see inter, or I should say intra-household disease transmission dynamics is very interesting because in any given house, there are, let's say, four or five people who are living there, there's one thermometer. So it gives information that you don't otherwise necessarily see if you're just collecting disease information from the clinic or from the ER or what have you. You're really actually able to see intra-household disease transmission. And that's a unique characteristic that is particularly useful when you think about highly transmissible respiratory illnesses like influenza. And so with this data, company has the opportunity to model and project, and in doing so also to its users, alert the users that there is rising infection in the community. So take care and protect yourself, protect others, et cetera. Do any of these companies have like a duty to report this to like the public health department? So that's a good question. And they, they don't necessarily have a, a duty 
public health reporting is quite specific with regards to a list of set required reports that are mandated by legislation, you know, meningitis and so on and so forth. These companies, particularly the two that um, whose technology I'm describing, are still fairly nonspecific. In, in the case of the fever screen, it's very nonspecific. But I would like to see the public health authorities uh, take further advantage of these capabilities and bring these kinds of data streams directly into their own public health surveillance assessments. So it's not so much a matter of a duty to report as it is a willingness to coordinate and join forces with public health entities. And I hope that we'll see that continue to evolve in in the near future. Do you think it's more the public health side that is less willing to use this data? Or is it more like the companies that just aren't quite ready to share that information with anyone? I'll be honest. I think I think it is very much reluctance on the part of the public health community. I mean, I think we held a, a roundtable. I mean, one of the the um, and one of the opportunities that I have at Incutel is really to convene participants across a broad array of government and academia and private sector entities to come together to talk about you know, a variety of different issues. So in fact, for your listeners, um, it may be worth posting the links to a couple of reports that we have published over the years, one on the use of digital health technologies to manage uh, an outbreak uh, uh, event. In fact, the timing of that was somewhat unique as we convened that meeting just prior to the onset of the COVID pandemic. More recently, a report on, on the data issues that we all experienced during the COVID outbreak. So though I'll, I'll make sure that, that you have links to those reports. I think they might be of interest. But as was highlighted in this most recent roundtable, private companies get the impression from their public health colleagues that, you know, what do you guys know? You're in the private sector. You're not CDC. You're not the state health department. You don't really understand public health surveillance the way we do. And so I think it's really, I think there's a disconnect. And, and I think this is where you know, the importance of promoting and assuring much stronger private-public partnerships is going to be critical for the health security future uh, in the United States and beyond, because no one entity can do it all. And I think that, and I hope that the COVID experience has demonstrated an all-hands-on-deck approach is going to really be what's required. So we'll see. But I, I, I hope that there are lessons learned from our most recent experiences that will allow for the public sector to bring more private sector entities uh, in, into, their, into their toolbox. And one of the other things that you mentioned was chatbots. And I feel like everybody is talking about them right now, especially with like ChatGPT and the other ones that are coming out. How could those be used for biosurveillance? Wow, ChatGPT is really sort of changing changing this conversation very very quickly. And it used to be at the advent of the internet and so on, you know, as an ER doc, you probably experienced this as well, Larissa. Somebody would come in and say, "Well, Dr. Google told me that I have to worry about this, this and this." And it's like, "Oh boy, that Dr. Google again." But chatbots and 
the use and application of, you know, uh, some format of artificial intelligence aided interactions based on training data sets uh, are really increasing the opportunity to provide at least first line analysis and interrogation, if you will, of patients around their particular symptomatic concerns. And and so there are a, a number of companies uh, that are beginning to employ the use of chatbots. I'm waiting to see when and how they will be incorporating sort of the advanced capabilities of ChatGPT to play, you know, essentially 20 questions and give you a differential diagnosis and the beauty is, is that in an asynchronous manner, because you're doing it on your phone or what have you, with a simple link, you can connect to a clinician to actually uh, answer your questions in real time. So I think this is going to increasingly play a, an important role as you know as we go forward, both in terms of the way we deliver day-to-day healthcare as well as its utility in a uh, in a large-scale infectious disease outbreak, for example. Do you think it'll replace the emergency room doc? Hmm. Never. Nobody's going to ever replace us. Come on. (laughs) Of course not. You know, I think, I mean, it's interesting. I participated in a study with my colleagues at Inova, Fairfax, and also National Children's Hospital about 10 years ago, looking at the role that online, an online triage tool could play in keeping patients out of the ER. So it's not so much the issue of replacing ER docs or ER clinicians as much as it is having a system that can ameliorate what we know will be the surge in demand for services when everybody thinks that they have, you know, disease X and everybody wants, you know, an answer and everybody is told, well, if you have any questions, consult your doctor, which of course translates to go to the ER. So I don't think we're at risk of being displaced by chatbots. I think what we want to be able to do is utilize them to support and serve the needs of our patients best, and also to support the operational constraints that we that we work under, particularly during times of crisis. Okay, we talked a little bit about this, but could you talk about some of the challenges to getting these technologies out into the world? The technologies that that I've been alluding to thus far are very much squarely in the startup space. And, you know, venture-backed capital startup is, it's a risky proposition because without the uptake, as we were just talking about a few moments ago, of, you know, the public sector, some of these technologies can literally die on the vine, uh, not because they're not capable and useful, but because there's nobody there to use them. So I think the big challenge right now is, particularly in biosurveillance, is to have the public health authorities really open up their aperture a bit and be willing to bring in some of these new um, technologies and fund them and fund them in a sustained manner so that they actually have an opportunity to to flourish. One of the big takeaways from the roundtable meeting uh, that we convened back in July of, of last summer, July 2022, One of the big takeaways was that, you know, we probably need to foster and create a public health industry where competition allows for the best and most capable of these technologies to play a role and to be a part of the landscape of biosurveillance and public health surveillance. 
But in the absence of creating and fostering that competition and paying for those capabilities, we run the risk of, of not really having the degree and, and expanse of tools that we really need to provide the situational awareness, both for individuals, you know, as patients, as well as practitioners like you and I, who need a, a good idea of what's happening in the community around us. That's so interesting. I feel like medicine is very much deeply ingrained with capitalism, but it's like I have an MPH as well. So my impression in that community is that it feels kind of like it's maybe above capitalism and the idea of having an industry of public health seems very foreign. It, it's a fair point. And I think that when we talk about technological innovation, I mean, taking a big step back, for a second. When we talk about technological innovation and, you know, being able to drive capabilities forward, capabilities that are of benefit to humankind, oftentimes that's exactly sort of the reaction. People are like, well, wait a second, it's for the public good. So can it make money too? And I think we have to get over that notion that if it's just for the public good, uh, it shouldn't necessarily benefit from the principles of capitalism. I think the two can go hand in hand. And, and I think that is where we need to be clear on the policy side about what it is that we're trying to achieve. But for example, back to the chatbot discussion. Chatbots, for example, have the potential to broadly widen access to healthcare, whether you access them on a computer or you access them on a smartphone. Not everybody has a computer or a smartphone, but increasingly people do. That actually promotes access to care as opposed to limits it. So I think we have to think about the corresponding policies that support some of these issues, uh, some of these capabilities. And I think, I think the country should have a, a discussion about um, what it means to bring forward a public health industry that is both a benefit to the public good, as well as um, based upon free market principles. So we had mentioned privacy issues as being a strong ethical consideration for some of these biosurveillance activities. Are there other ones that we should be thinking about when we're implementing these technologies? So privacy and security, I think, are paramount. And I mean, the nice thing about, for example, wastewater epi is it's completely anonymous. You have no idea who's, whose poop is flushing through the sewer at any given time with wearables and you know other data streams that are coming off an individual clearly those privacy and security concerns are more paramount you know i think that to a certain extent we have to govern the relationship between privacy security and contribution to again back to contributing to the public good and i think that the big issues are that it not be you know, that data not be used in a nefarious or, you know, mean-spirited way. And that, um, you know, that there are assurances of the protections that are expected when such data is, you know, is being used. But I, I recognize that this is a, it's a challenging area. And there are definitely, certainly communities that feel that they've been taken advantage of in the past and might yet be taken advantage of again. So, so I think this too lends itself to open and frank dialogue and assurances um, that those protections are in place and that the policies that are needed to support those protections are, are there and being enforced. 
So if some of this data, say from the wastewater monitoring, if that fell into the wrong hands, whatever that means, what would they be able to do with it? What what are we worried about? Well, I worry less about wastewater than I do sort of data streams that have more direct personal uh, linkages. First of all, with your, I think you said you're a Fitbit or Apple Watch where, I mean, there's a lot of mobility data that, that that is attendant to where you're going and what you're doing at any given time. All of that could potentially be exploited. I don't worry that much about sort of bad actors manipulating this data in a, in a manner by which it results in, you know, some uh, means of blackmail or whatnot. I, I, you know, I think that's probably good for the movies and the novels. I don't think in the real world that is likely to happen. But I, I do think that, you know, we need to uh, attend to the fact that privacy and security, as we talk about anything related to data, uh, should still stand as a, a fundamental principle of what we're trying to achieve. You know, when you think about uh, genetic data, right, if you're actually now taking the next step towards get, getting more invasive information, you know, there are laws on the books that prevent the manipulation of uh, genetic information. Uh, so I think it's it's that sense of protection and uh, reinforcement that is attend should be attendant to all discussions when it comes to data. Is there a lot of international collaboration between either like countries or international companies as far as biosurveillance? Is it is it kind of isolated for a region? You know, I can only speak or I can speak best to uh, the way, you know, the United States looks at, you know, biosurveillance. So, for example, CDC collaborates with, I don't know, I think 40 or 50 countries to develop and support stronger surveillance systems. I, I, I remember I spent time about a decade ago uh, in uh, Tanzania uh, working with the public health authorities there on helping to stand up and improve some of their uh, public health surveillance work. So I know that our CDC is, is significantly engaged and, you know, um, you know, through whether it's training or you know technological innovations like what we've just been talking about or other partnerships, um, the CDC definitely plays a role in uh, monitoring and finding and tracking outbreaks. I mean, think about right now the Marburg disease outbreak in Guinea, and I heard there are, are new reports of cases in, I think it was Uganda, maybe. Um, so, you know, another another place I can tell you where I turn is ProMed. ProMed is really, I would say, the preeminent uh, means of keeping track, although it can be quite voluminous, but it is crowdsourced, if you will, from across the globe with reports of outbreaks of disease in both human and, and animal populations, and is a really good way of keeping track of what's happening across the globe. And then more specifically, there are there are now companies that uh, are beginning to integrate multiple data feeds. So we've talked about fever monitoring, we've talked about wastewater epi, we've talked about uh, uh, other sort of sort of public health data feeds. Um, they are looking at all of those plus, social media and uh, science and scientific literature reports and other databases that are either in real time or very near real time 
uh, providing data streams and integrating all of those and piecing those multiple data streams together to provide a picture in very near real time of disease developments across the globe. Um, so I think the, as the world gets smaller, the opportunity to keep tabs on what's happening in any given geographic location is um, becoming increasingly easier. Are there ways that the government or specific companies use biosurveillance to monitor or detect bioterrorism threats or events? Yeah. So everything that we've just talked about is as relevant for a natural occurring emerging infection as it is the intentional release of a bioterror agent. Remember, going back to my the beginning of my career and the, the anthrax cases and October of 2001. We paid close attention to patients who were coming to the emergency departments. I participated in a paper, you know, that highlighted the fact that over a thousand patients presented in the two-week period of time between mid and end of October 2001, all of whose chief complaint was they all thought they had anthrax, uh, and within which we picked out the two postal workers who actually truly had inhalation anthrax. And after the fact, I uh, participated in a project uh, with colleagues here in the DC area to apply natural language processing to those charts to see how well an NLP text analytics program would pick up those cases. And they picked up the two inhalation anthrax cases and highlighted a handful others that had some high risk with regards to what was being read in the chart. So these approaches are as relevant for bioterror events as they are for emerging infectious diseases. How would you suggest that people who are interested in careers in biosurveillance go about uh, getting a start? Well, you know, I think I think this is, you know, I think it's a very exciting career. And um, I think, you know, the the bread and butter of surveillance and biosurveillance is really in the public health, you know, workforce. And so whether you pursue those interests uh, like yourself with a master's in public health or a DRPH, you know, I think the, the creme de la creme, if you will, of our surveillance colleagues uh, go through CDC's uh, EIS service, Epidemiologic uh, Investigation Service, which is like a fellowship uh, at the completion of residency to really learn how to be an epidemiologist and how to do contact tracing and outbreak investigations and so on. And, you know, if that's a little too much, then, uh, well, you know, there are lots of good, lots of good books and, you know, probably some, probably some movies, outbreak, et cetera, that might scratch that itch. But uh, I think, you know, for anyone, for anyone who's in medicine these days, and certainly as emergency physicians, you always have to sort of keep keep your eyes and ears open and your suspicion up as you're going through evaluating cases that, you know, if something doesn't make sense, ask the next, next question or scratch a little deeper and try to figure out what's going on. So what do you envision as the future of biosurveillance looking like? Uh, my hope is that the future builds on some of the things that we were just talking about um, just now and that that we will see essentially an integrated operational architecture that is based upon 
improvements in data collection. And, you know, we talked today a lot about sort of PCR and fever, but, you know, I mean, beyond sort of clinical data and epi data, I think, you know, there's the opportunity for genetic sequencing and phylogenetics and improvements in pathogen characterization, human population movement, um, with all of that kind of data coming into a system that is then powered to be able to analyze and arrange and make sense of that data to be able to provide, you know, disease risk mapping and forecasting and essentially assist decision makers in being smart about optimizing scarce resources and improving in their ability to provide risk communications and um, and improving clinical outcomes. So uh, my hope is that what COVID-19 initiated was really the beginning of a trajectory towards a much better, much more fulsome, integrated situational awareness capability that we will call, you know, enhancements and improvements in biosurveillance. Can you tell us a story about an experience that you had either at NQTEL or earlier on in your career that had a really big impact on you? I guess I would go back to to the anthrax cases, really. That period of time in the history of the United States was so unsettling, obviously, having come just a few weeks after the 9-11 attacks. And for my generation, uh, and particularly in the field of disaster medicine, having entered disaster medicine at the during my residency, and, you know, which I completed in the mid-90s, uh, and I felt like, gosh, I was one of a handful of ER docs across the country that were really interested, like really deeply interested in disasters. And then 9-11 happened and I had the opportunity, I responded to the Pentagon with FEMA. I was there for a couple of weeks and then came home only to be pulled into the anthrax response. And I think that that really set set my career forward and made very clear um, just how important systems are, systems with regards to the ability to integrate and coordinate information, the ability to share information, the ability to see what data uh, is demonstrating, the ability to communicate both, you know, with peers as well as, you know, with our patients and uh, the fragility within which the world that we inhabit. You know, the fact that that Mother Nature, I mean, those were intentional letters. And thankfully, there were deaths, but there weren't very many deaths, uh, although the entire country was frightened beyond belief. Uh, But a few years later, you know, with the advent of SARS-1 and then uh, H1N1 and then the uh, Ebola crisis and Zika, uh, you know, I've just really come to respect the fragility of our ecosystem and the fact that we still have a long way to go to be better prepared. And because as we've all experienced over the last three years, the consequences of not being prepared are too great. Over a million Americans dead, tremendous economic disruptions across the globe, you know, a lack of trust, a lack of faith in science. I hope we use this as a wake up and as a warning to really uh, put in place the kinds of capabilities that will protect us uh, much better uh, in crises to come. Well, that is all of my questions, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. We're pretty much right on time. Is there anything else that we should talk about regarding biosurveillance or anything you wanted to mention? I think, you know, I think you asked me a, a great set of questions. I hope uh, you know, I hope that the listeners uh, will dig in a little bit deeper, and uh, I'd look forward to 
coming back and chatting with you about this or other topics in the future. Well, I cannot wait to have you back because this was fantastic. So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, Larissa. I really appreciate the chance. Music track courtesy of Pixabay and composed by Alex Zavesa. I'm your host, Larissa Unruh, and I'll see you next time on The Disaster Project.